Hello and welcome to Brandenburg One. I'm Huron Zani and thank you for joining me for more Baroque Now. As always, I'm joined by one of the amazing musicians and artists bringing Baroque music to life with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Baroque violinist Raphael Font is with me today to talk about the differences between his instrument and the more modern instruments you may be familiar with, as well as the origin story behind polyphonic music for the solo violin. Hello Raf, thank you for coming in today. It's a pleasure to have you with me. Hi, pleasure's mine. Obviously today we're going to talk about a lot of things violin related. It's been very exciting listening to your performance in the Bach series. Thank you. And we'll get to that piece uh, later, that performance. A lot of the times I feel like there are some assumptions made about how violins are meant to sound or how they're played and that they look very similar, modern violins and Baroque violins, but, but they're not so similar, are they? No, there is, especially with Baroque violins, there's going to be a lot of variation. The violin was basically only standardized in the 19th century, mm -hmm. when some of the French makers starting, well, not only studying old violins and picking the best ones, but also changing a lot of instruments, modernizing them and changing them all to be the same. So a, a lot of those uh, Italian makers, though, the names like Stradivarius, uh, are better known. But you're saying that it was uh, a French group that was sort of looking into the standardization of instruments. Yes, it was the French workshop of Vion, mostly responsible with a lot of those uh, modifications. Um, they obviously preferred Stradivarius and Guarnieri sort of instruments, which are very bright, loud Italian instruments. Mm. Um, they took that as the what the standard for, let's say, the shape of the instrument should be, but even those instruments they still modified extensively. And Highly, what, sort of, what sort of yeah. modifications are we talking about? Well, for example, um, of the Stradivarius instruments, none of them survive with their original or all the original parts all of them even the ones that are were the museum ones that were forbidden to be played right they tried, they tried to keep there's two of them the messiah and another one i can't remember the name even those were modified so the neck was taken off right and it was reattached to the body at a different angle that would hold um would make a bigger angle over the bridge. Okay, would, so maybe we can yeah. backtrack just a, mm -hmm. a little bit. So, so what is the the neck of the violin? So the neck is is the it is fairly um, self-describing. Yes. It's where you hold your left hand, yes. where you put your fingers down to stop the strings and change the notes. And uh, obviously, that's where we can see your hand, your fingers doing a lot of work, uh, exactly. uh, playing all the in different intervals and, you know, uh, changing the notes mm -hmm. that are going to be sounding. Uh, but maybe uh, you can explain to us, okay, so the angle of the neck, why is that important? Well, there was a big change in what the violin was supposed to sound like. The aesthetics were changing, the taste was changing, and so accordingly, the design of violins changed. And a lot of that had to do with the kind of music that was being written. A lot of that had to do with the acoustics of the places that were performing in. So early Baroque violins, um, all of this time we're talking about gut strings, of course, because metal strings haven't been invented yet. Okay. Um, so this is purely to do with the tone. 
that yes. the violin is producing. Um, earlier violins were designed to imitate the human spoken voice. So right. most important was to get um, details of pronunciation and differences in intonation that imitate mostly Latin and Italian because mm -hmm. they were deemed uh, the highest, most beautiful languages, right? Which is potentially an inheritance from obviously uh, Roman and, and you know, culture and, and the way that Europe actually you know, the developed. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about the classical period called classical for a reason. They were looking back to the ancient Roman Greece as their ideals of beauty. Yes. yes yeah, yeah. And so this early violin was not concerned about being loud, even though it could be. And mm -hmm. um, it was more concerned about having a lot of variety in the kind of articulation, the attack of the notes. Mm. The, so if you want to make consonant, all of those sounds are more easier to produce on a certain kind of instrument. Right. So the Baroque violin is more suited to that sound. And does this maybe have something to do with the spaces within which uh, performances were, were happening in, in the Baroque period? Or is it purely the aesthetic choice? Well, both. I think the aesthetic is the principal concern, mm -hmm. but certainly the spaces that we're performing in were a big influence. So early Baroque violins had, in order to produce this sort of like more spoken kind of sound, mm -hmm. there was less tension inflicted on the strings right. through a, a, a whole host of changes. These were the things that the Beyond and his um, luthiers were looking at and changing. Right. So I'll give you some examples. The bridge is lower on yes. a baroque violin. The neck is straight. It, it is a parallel line. If you draw a line through the body, of the violin, yep. if you continue that line, the neck is exactly in the same plane. Yes, okay? as, as, as where uh, essentially the visible body of the instrument is. So yeah. the neck and the body, dead flat. Exactly. Um, that's just one example. But there are many things inside and outside, yeah. and some of the fittings, like the, the, the shape and material of the fingerboard and the, the tailpiece. Yes also change with this in name. So the tension, instead of being inflicted by the shape, the geometry of the violin, yes. um, the tension was added by putting thicker strings. Uh -huh. And the thicker strings will produce more articulation. Right. And so is it the left hand or the right hand that obviously with the bow, the right hand with the bow, that benefits from those thicker strings and is able to articulate? Or is it both hands working together? Um, well, the biggest the sound is obviously produced by the bow, the yes. right hand. So the right hand, um, it will make it easier for the right hand to produce these different articulations that right. we want to um, use to produce yes. as a spoken sound. For the left hand, it's harder because the strings are thicker and you need more force and just a different touch to yeah. hold the string down. Yes. Um, so as the taste started to change also, music halls got bigger and mm -hmm. um, a more singing operatic sound mm. um, was favored and in order to do this then the strings got thinner mm -hmm. but to compensate for that the violin started to be modified so they could keep the high tension which 
makes bigger volume mm -hmm. while changing the tone of the instrument. Right. Now, I, I know, Raph, that you didn't start on the Baroque violin. In fact, I don't know of a violinist that did start on the Baroque violin. But uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your path to the Baroque violin and then the things in your technique that needed to change or that you worked on in order to just do that, play uh, as per a spoken voice and articulate those consonants that you've been talking about. Yes, that's a great question. Um, I was lucky enough that I was exposed to Baroque music at a very early age. Mm -hmm. um, my father had been a recording engineer back in Venezuela, where oh. I'm from, and he was he recorded a chamber group, which must have been the earliest period instrument ensemble in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. uh, they recorded a CD of, of concerts by Kukran, um, beautiful pieces, and I listened to that CD on repeat at home all the time. <laughs> um, I was also very fond of Vivaldi, which were some of the earliest concertos that I listened to, and some of the CD recordings that we listened to were also on period instruments. I loved, for example, the Four Seasons recording of the English concert with Simon Standage performing mm, on the mm. solo part of the violin. So not just sentimental reasons, but obviously there was something in the sound that uh, you were attracted to. Definitely, definitely. I loved Vivaldi, and then I played some Bach concertos, and yeah, or everything Baroque I was very into. I didn't have the chance to pick up a Baroque violin, however, until I went to study in Europe. Okay. I went, one of the reasons I went to Europe was I knew it would be easier for me to try it. Mm -hmm. I went to Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London, and I was able to borrow a Baroque violin like as soon as I got there. Basically. Yeah, well, it was one of the things I wanted to try. I got the opportunity to have lessons as well with mm -hmm. Pavlo Vesnusuk, who was um, at that time the um, first violinist of Academy of Ancient Music. Ah. And maybe something uh, for those that haven't been to some of these schools like Guildhall, Royal College of Music and the Royal mm -hmm. Academy of Music. Um, these schools actually have extensive collections of instruments and not just so not just as their library's manuscripts, but extensive collections of instruments from the period and uh, lots of people working into the research behind just what we're talking about, how these instruments developed and what sort of sound would be an authentic sound from the period. Yes, certainly, certainly. Mm -hmm. London, the conservators in London were some of the first to embrace the historical performance movement, whereas in other parts, more conservative parts of Europe, um, even to this day, is not always welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's very, it's, I met lots of like great Polish and Bulgarian players who did it, but I know that some of the, especially the Russian school, can be a little bit less um, permissive towards right. things that go against a very long and, and tradition of playing. Yeah. Now, uh, so back to the, the second part of that question, what parts of your technique did you need to work on and adapt when you moved from modern violin with this high string tension and angled uh, neck uh, to the to a baroque violin for the first time. Yes, the tension is something I've been exploring a bit more recently. When I first picked up a baroque violin, this is probably the experience for most people. The first thing you are faced with is how do you hold the thing? <laughs> it's because a baroque violin has got no chin wrist and no shoulder wrist, which are much later inventions. Mm. You've got to do most of the holding with your left hand 
which is one of the first things that today I even teach my students, which is you hold the violin with your chin. Just the weight of your head is enough, and then your left hand is completely free. It has no duty to hold any of the weight. Mm. On the Brock violin, that's not the case. You have to do most of the holding with your left hand. However, there was no standardized way of holding the violin. There were lots of approaches. Um, some of them involved the chin to more or less degree. Um, some on the left of the tailpiece, for example, some on the right. But again, there's no chin rest, so mm. what the chin can do is limited. You still always need the hand. And I remember uh, having seen images, uh, drawings as part of certain manuscripts, especially things that were um, drawn uh, in a, a, a sort a production. Sorry, a um, an edition like John Playford's The Dancing uh, Master editions, where we have some images of essentially fiddlers, the people who were playing the music to which the dancers would have been danced, and you can see them holding a violin not at all uh, near the chin or on the shoulder, but actually much lower down, and almost like a fiddler sort of you know uh, holding it at the waist. Correct. Yes, that's certainly the case. The further back in history you go the more likely you would have found fiddlers or violinists performing with the violin quite far down, mm -hmm. either on the chest, on the arm, mm -hmm. or a combination of both. Yeah. The reason being, the violin was most popular as a dance instrument. You mm -hmm. performed dances for people to, to dance to. Yeah. Often we have, for example, this is beautiful instrument called a pochette, mm -hmm. which is literally a pocket violin. It's <laughs> small enough that it can fit on your cloak, and dancing masters would carry this instrument to their dance lessons. So the, the, the uh, original iPod? Uh, that's exactly <laughs> it, yes. Now, uh, um, in terms of uh, the, uh, again, back to, back to tension, and you said you've been looking into this. So, so what, what have you discovered? Well, um, a lot of my knowledge of this comes from um, a wonderful balance whom I met in Guildhall, um, Oliver Weber. He's a specialist in studying strings, period strings, mm -hmm. and he introduced me to the concept of equal tension. Mm -hmm. um, equal tension means that every string is holding the same weight or force as every other. On a old 17th and early 18th century instrument, this is what the sources we have say was the case. This may, means your th your bottom strings, your lower sounding strings are much thicker mm. than what a modern violin has. A modern violin is not strong in equal tension, but in, let's say, um, scaling or progressive. Right. So the, th the thinner string will be have the highest tension, mm -hmm. and the further down you go, the lower the, the tension. And I imagining we're playing exactly the same notes, what difference does, does that make? Yes. In more practical terms, again, what this means is that a thicker string on a baroque violin will sound more like spoken voice, mm. and a thinner string on a modern violin will sound more like singing voice. Yes, right. So in terms of technically, thicker strings, you're saying you're having to hold the violin more with the left hand. Is this limiting how quickly you can play passages? Yes, so this greatly limits how quickly you can move up and down mm -hmm. the violin. And that's reflected in the music, where the, the upper register of the violin is much more limited. And um, also, vibrato is much... You can vibrate on every note, 
but the kind of vibrato that comes out when you're actively holding the violin mostly with your hand is much different. It, uh, it's smaller and less noticeable. This goes with taste as well, because vibrato was seen as another ornament that you could add occasionally to your music. They weren't expecting you to vibrate on every single note like a violinist today would do when performing a big romantic concerto. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when we've talked, we've we've hinted at it. We've talked about some of the performance spaces and how they've been changing. Obviously, after finishing your your studies, uh, Raf, you uh, ended up coming out to Australia, and you'd already met several musicians with whom you actually play now. I'm lucky enough to meet. I mean, so many wonderful colleagues. One of the reasons I went to the Hague is that it's the mecca of early music. Um, it's the mm. biggest um, early music department in a conservatoire in the world. Mm. So I, uh, the, lots of Australians go there, and I met there um, some of my colleagues, Matthew Greco, who's also in the Brandenburg Orchestra, yes. uh, Anton Baba and Anthony Abuhamad. They're all Australians who went to specialize in Baroque music in The Hague. Uh, we met there, and by pure coincidence we all moved to Australia at roughly the same time <laughs> and we suddenly find oh we're all here we're four great musicians we all like playing love playing with each other <laughs> and uh, it's the perfect combination two violins harpsichord cello let's start a group yeah and that's how the Muffet Collective was born yes. so with the Muffet Collective you guys have been doing a lot of interesting things maybe tell us a little bit about what you've been doing well we we, again, we are sort of like a quartet, two violins, um, cello and harpsichord. They together play the same part most of the time, which is the basso continuo part. So we play trio sonatas written for three parts. Um, we cover all of the Baroque period. So we, we've done some very early 17th century, like the time of Monteverdi, that sort of music, mm-hmm. up to Carl Philipp Bach, of course, and all the greats, Vivaldi, Corelli, Johann Sebastian Bach. Yeah. And with all of your study collectively, um, how have you gone about uh, approaching the idea of not just what pl- what you're playing, but where you play it? There's um, obviously a difference between the places that this kind of music would have performed in the 17th and 18th centuries and today. It's called chamber music, precisely because it was performed mostly in the chambers or the salons of palaces of the nobility or the royalty. Mm-hmm. Um, so this music sometimes was meant to be listened to intently. Sometimes it was more of a background role. Mm-hmm. And um, those spaces in general, again, were smaller and were a, a lot more reverberant, or at least a different nature to the reverb of it. Um, a more reverberant sound suits a Baroque instrument very well. Because the instrument, we, we, try, we go for very articulated sounds that, um, it can tend to sound harsh in a very dry environment. Mm. Um, so if whenever we perform, we're always much more comfortable in bigger spaces. So let's say medium to small sized churches that are both reverberant, but also a, a short reverb. Yeah. So when you make a sound, the echo comes back quicker. Yeah. Um, even in recordings, we always yeah try to find a space with reverb, or we add it later in post-production. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens when we don't have that kind of space is then we have to adjust our technique mm-hmm. significantly sometimes. We'll have to um, recreate the reverb that happens 
in a bigger space by just changing the way you use the phone. All musicians are used to this, of course. This is this is uh, basic performing technique, mm-hmm. but it's particularly relevant with baroque violins yes. because it can sound harsh if you uh, don't do that. You've painted a, a very clear picture here. Um, if we're going to have a sound that imitates in any way successfully the sung voice, the, the, human, the human voice, especially uh, those sorts of syllabic uh, articulations, uh, if you're in a, a space that's too dry, well, there's not going to be a lot of meat to the sound. It's going to sort of decay and it's not the sort of sound that's going to be generous to the instrument or to the, to the player. And uh, if we think about choirs and where we normally see choirs and, and singers performing, it's rarely in a very dry acoustic. We, we like to hear singers performing, and they have been traditionally performing, in things like churches and, and cathedrals. And this sort of reverberant space works very well with the voice as with Baroque instruments. In terms of some specific projects then um, that you think have been quite successful, have there been some spaces that have worked very well for you? Um, we did this um, wonderful concert. Well, it wasn't. Well, I guess it was a concert. We performed in a bar once. Oh, right. <laughs> um, the, a fairly small space, low ceilings, and I think it must have sat about 50 people no more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that turned out to be the perfect space for this music because the audience could sit very close. Um, there was... The sound wasn't dry, but there wasn't a long echo that sometimes you can find in big cathedrals mm-hmm. or big concert halls. Um, and the combination of both those things turned out to be very successful, yes. Well, having a few drinks, uh, enjoying a concert, <laughs> as well, as well. it sounds like a beautiful combination. Well, and again, this was music meant for that kind of ambience, yes. So maybe let's backtrack a little bit and, and talk about violin technique. J.S. Bach's uh, collection of partitas and sonatas for solo violin is basically considered still today as both essential repertoire but also some of the most virtuosic writing for the solo violin. Um, we, we hear people talking about uh, polyphonic writing for essentially a melodic instrument. Maybe you could explain a little bit about that and how uh, we got to what actually the music is that J.S. Bach wrote. Sure. Well, polyphony means from the word poly for many and phony for sounds, many Mm -hmm. sounds. Um, Yes, like you're saying, traditionally, the violin is not a polyphonic instrument. The violin is meant to play one part of music, and you will get several violins or instruments of the violin family, which is what the viola and cello are, to form a complete piece of music. Mm -hmm. Um, A solo violin piece of music was not common. Again, because polyphony music was uh, desired and preferred. And probably the first instances of solo violin are, like we talked before, um, dancing masters who, who would just play the melody of a dance, mm-hmm. which would be also a very simple melody that clearly illustrated the rhythm, which is the mm-hmm. important thing in dance. Well, exactly. And, and I can imagine if they were a well-known tune that uh, other people in the tavern or wherever the, the dancing hall would have been able to even sing along or if they had their own instruments, play along and uh, improvise potentially other parts, uh, maybe not just uh, playing exactly along with the melody, but in harmony with the melody. And who knows, maybe even some sort of improvised bass part along with it. Exactly. So like you bring out a good point. Um, if you're playing a well-known tune, 
And then the first element, the earliest element of virtuosity comes in, which is when you do divisions. A division is um, when you start adding smaller notes that fill in or divide the bigger notes in the tune. So, like you're saying, people in the tavern would have been singing the main tune and you would be playing a, a more complex melody that follow, uh, closely follow the contours of the main melody. Mm-hmm. And by, again, ma- making it into smaller notes, you're dividing the bigger notes, and that's where the term divisions comes from. Right. And they, we have lots of examples of written out divisions, even though they were improvised at the time, but for, like, for didactic purposes or for like the amateur market, and we get uh, written out. And that's one of the main sources we have today to study divisions. Some of the best examples is like the Museum of Balza, mm-hmm. published by Playford in England in the 17th century. Um, he's got uh, a few wonderful sets of variations for divisions on themes like uh, John Come Kiss Me Now. John Playford actually was, an, was a real interesting figure, almost had a monopoly on, on the publishing of, of lots of music, especially this dance music that we've been talking about. Yes, so he's highly responsible for making the violin more popular amongst uh, the amateur market, whereas before it was seen almost exclusively as a professional instrument. Right. Well, in some of these writings, so as a balsa, we start saying, again, as party tricks, or like to impress your audience, uh, they started featuring double stops, which is when you play two strings at once with the violin. For anyone who's been taught as a monophonic instrument, and anyone used to listening to a monophonic violin, Listening to two parts moving at once must have been really impressive at the time. Mm. And thus, the very first um, uh, polyphonic writing for the violin is very simple. It's two parts that often move in parallel, so they both both move up or down in the same direction. They involve lots of open strings, Mm -hmm. um, because this was deemed impressive enough at the time. Of course, as everything, the style evolved, and then little by little we start seeing all the composers, the ones that we bring up in the program notes. Balzer was one of them, but then Westhoff, um, Bieber a little Bieber, bit later. Yeah. And Schmelzer, obviously, Schmelzer, before, yes. before Bieber, and, uh, and we talked about the Dresden school of, of composers, so uh, Westhoff and also Walter. Walter, Walter yes. yes. Another contemporary of Playford's who was quite fond of divisions would have been Nicola Matteis, an Italian violinist working in Scotland and England. Now, Matteis was responsible for a chocona that was performed live by the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra on the album A Celtic Christmas. Let's have a listen to some of those divisions, recorded live in 2014 by Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, Nicola Matteis, Chacona. double stopping and the beginnings of this movement towards polyphonic writing for the violin. 
Uh, you talked about Balzar being at the start of it. There is transmission from some of these earlier violinists like Schmelzer to Bieber and then from Bieber to Westhoff and Walter working together in Dresden and then Bach coming uh, again later. As with many things, as you said, techniques develop and, and new ideas are, are brought into the fold. We know how much of a proponent Bach was of writing fugues and his uh, strength in keyboard uh, writing. He was known as an obviously a virtuoso for the organ and an organ builder. What may he have brought into violin playing, uh, initially in your opinion anyway, what, what do you think he brought to this idea that was new at the time? Well, plenty, plenty. Bach's is such a unique work, like you're saying, it's relevant today. Um, I think his organist skills and mindsets clearly translated into violin into something new, very innovative at the time. I think you can, for the first time, you can clearly hear completely independent parts that persist throughout a whole composition. Whereas in the works of some of his predecessors, um, they seem to happen only in certain sections or they seem to have um, just a more limited scope. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your research into this collection and how you even came about it for the first time. Right, well, I came into it the way I imagine most violinists did, which is I was playing modern violin, and it was standard repertoire. When you got to a certain level, you would expect it to learn these pieces. Mm -hmm. um, it's probable that from the very beginning they were meant as pedagogical material so like very difficult things meant to make you better mm -hmm. and the violin just by studying them they were they are still today incredibly difficult to perform <laughs> so most people who start learning them won't get the chance to perform them mm -hmm. um, but they are great uh, to listen to to learn to study everything so I was completely captivated from the moment I, I first heard them and ran into them. The first one I started learning was the the prelude from the E major um, partita, number three. Mm -hmm. um, that one is not polyphonic, maybe a small section, but most of it is just single notes. Uh, it's still very difficult, and there's still um, some tricks that he uses. He uses like arpeggiation, like which is taking a chord and then playing one note at a time. Mm -hmm. That way you can still um, suggest that there are independent parts, even though you're only playing one note at a time. Yes. And he does the same approach in the D minor partita, which is the next one I start learning, until you get to the very last movement, which is, of course, the Chacon, which is... The, yeah, from another world. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the best, in my opinion, the best piece of music ever written for violin. Wow, uh, okay. Um, Just that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very long. It has definitely lots of independent parts, lots of four-note chords and, and different sections. The whole piece is like variation, so each variation has a different approach to polyphony, mm -hmm. but there is certainly polyphony involved in all of it. It's, it's really an amazing piece of work. You should go and listen to it right now if yeah. you have not listened to it before. And indeed, audiences may remember that Annie Gard performed this Chacon last year as part of the Next Generation program in the City Recital Hall and also in Melbourne at the Melbourne Recital Centre. Uh, so yes, so you went from the E minor to the D minor, uh, and then, uh, please, go on. And then I started the A minor. That was the next one that I, that I started learning. Um, that would have been more than 10 years ago. I've been learning that piece for quite a long time. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing, again, because it has a pedagogical use. You learn it first just to 
get your fingers around, give them a good workout, and then you might not get to perform because it's not ready, but you go on to learn something else and then you come back to it. Yeah. I've come back to this piece lots of times on modern violin first, then when I picked up the Baroque violin, maybe on my second year in it, I started also learning this piece. I had to learn it from scratch, almost, again, because the left hand technique is so different. You have to hold the violin and play all these notes at the mm, same time. Mm. And then I revisited it, I think, two years ago when I had to put on a recital um, and I had a chance to do a bit of solo. I said, well, it's about time. I, you know, I've been trying this piece for 10 years. Might as well put it in front of an audience. <laughs> um, uh, it was a lot of work, but it was very enjoyable. I, I definitely, I think for the first time, I played a solo piece where I said, oh, I, I enjoy this. Yeah. And so when Paul approached me this year to record some back, I said, well, I've, this is the last thing I performed. I let, I worked really hard on it. I think we need to give this a go. Specifically for the Bach series, you played the Grave in Fuga from the Sonata in A minor for solo violin. Uh, how do these two movements fit into that work as a, as a larger whole? Um, I think for this one, uh, all three sonatas follow roughly the same scheme. Right. The the first one in G minor, the second one in A minor, the third one in C major. There's one slow introductory movement that is, in the case of the first two, very rhetorical. So there's, um, it really sounds like a, like a like a speech, and it's organized as such. Mm. Um, they have a melody that is very ornamented. I think it's purely ornamentation. The essential part of the composition is the chords. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a violinist, you play a chord and then you ornament and, and slowly make your way to the next chord and then again. Um, on this um, this piece, I was inspired by the sort of the structure of a cathedral. Um, you have uh, long, big columns in the center of the nave of the main space of the cathedral. Mm-hmm. And when they go up, they branch. And sometimes they can actually look like a tree. Mm-hmm. And then there will be lots of detail and ornament at the very top. So I imagine the chorus as being the column and the ornamentation on top being the melody. Yes, because in fact, you, you didn't say it, but the grave is the first movement of the sonata in A minor. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And then uh, the third sonata is slightly different. Maybe we can leave talk about that some other time. Okay. Um, and then the second movement of all the sonatas is a fugue, which is by far the biggest and most complex movement of these sonatas. Um, I would say they are mostly written in three parts. Okay. Um, so there's a melody, um, usually a counter subject, which will be one of the middle strings, and a bass part. Sometimes you are playing two of them and the other one's resting, and sometimes you play a different combination of two. And sometimes you have to play all three. And sometimes in order for the voices to fit in the right string, uh, Bach has to add a fourth note. So you end up playing four note chords. But in my opinion, even though there's four notes, often it's the three parts writing. And so what, uh, in terms of technically playing this particular uh, movement, the fugue, what is so tricky about it? Um, well, you have to be very nimble with your left hand, um, it's very chromatic, which means it uses a lot of like sharps and flats notes in between the the usual seven note scale. It uses a lot of like in the piano that would be the black keys. Mm-hmm. Um, that means that um, you only have four fingers, but they are uh, 
notes in between where those fingers usually go. So your fingers have to be very nimble moving up and down the string to find all those, let's say, black key notes and also move from one string to the other because sometimes fingers have to play double duty stopping two strings at a time. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to say for the audience that uh, Raf, while he's talking, is using his <laughs> left hand and gesticulating, and we can see his fingers moving around, imagining where they would go on the on yeah. on the neck of if the you, violin. If you listen to my recording or the fugue, uh, listen to like the first four bars, you'll see immediately what I mean. <clears throat> There's a line da, 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 that happens all through the fugue. That's a chromatic line, and that means mm. that you have to move one or two fingers very quickly to find those notes. And sometimes that line happens in the middle of four note chords or yeah. three part writing. Um, so it gets very difficult very quickly. There's also some places where you have to stretch your hand quite a lot, mm. more than what the usual position is, and those are tricky. Fortunately, I have hands big enough, but many violins struggle a lot with some of these sections. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, to keep all the notes in track and to play in time and in tune, just getting the basics down can so be many difficult enough. Yes. <laughs> and uh, indeed, that, that uh, melody, that, that uh, descending uh, chromatic line that you just sang for us, uh, we talked about it in the program notes, and, and it, that was our essentially um, our lament. And that figure is rife throughout the fugue, and, and obviously is the sort of thing that while we're listening to the fugue, it, it keeps reminding, him, uh, reminding us of, of potentially an idea, some sort of... Um, pain or, or I don't know it depends on the individual listener what they interpret it as but th the thing as a composer that I take from that particular lament is Bach's uh, ingenious use of the chromatic descending line to create ambiguity between a minor and a major often it's a G sharp G that we're, that we're hearing and or C sharp C are we in a minor are we in a major and as you also, um, when you showed me the piece, as you referred to in the program notes, the piece ends in A major, and it's almost like he's been ingeniously, ingeniously preparing us throughout the entire fugue for a surprise A major ending. Yes. I think Bach, well, there's, that's certainly part of the reason, I'm sure, because it's so prevalent. But I think Bach was also drawing on earlier tradition, like really, really early. We're talking the time of Monteverdi, when... Um, minor chords were not deemed sufficient to end a phrase or a cadence. Ah. They would always end on a major. This is where the um, where, where this tradition comes from. Even on a minor piece, you often end a phrase on a major key. And then, as if nothing happened, continue in minor right after. <laughs> uh, it's very, very old-fashioned. Um, just because, well, in, again, going back to the harmonic series, uh, this is how sound happens in nature. The major chord is the natural one. The minor chord is, is something else, a bit more artificial that we've invented. Well, thank you for that discussion, Raf. It was absolutely riveting, hearing all about the violin and the struggles that you guys <laughs> go through. It was my pleasure. I'd like to invite everyone who hasn't yet to go and listen to my recording of the Grave and Fuga on the Brandenburg One website, and as well as all the other wonderful performances by my orchestra colleagues. The Brandenburg is proud of our long-standing relationship with principal partner Macquarie Group. Our partnership with Macquarie Group is built on a shared vision of infinite possibilities and a commitment to the very highest standards of excellence. The Brandenburg is also proud to be supported by APA Group, 
our presenting partner for the Bach series. Through our partnership with APA Group, we have the opportunity to connect Baroque music to audiences and communities throughout Australia.